Welcome to the Aggressive Life. You know, we're not afraid to get into contentious topics here at the Aggressive Life. I kind of I like it sometimes, Dirt, to be honest. I do. And uh, this one's going to cause some controversy today. Your best fast food chicken sandwich. Go. You know, if you answered Popeye's, you will find out today why the Louisiana-born chicken place is a top contender. And if you did not answer Popeye's, you might have answered KFC. You might have answered Chick-fil-A. We got somebody today who's got real-life experience with all those brands and all those chickens. She's responsible for the slaughtering of so many chickens that have gone inside of your belly. Well, maybe she's not responsible, but uh, uh, she's she's worked with all these different companies. Cheryl Batchelder is the former CEO of Popeye's Louisiana chicken. At the time she was hired, Popeye's future looked bleak. Profits were steadily falling. And before her, the company had shuffled through four different CEOs in seven years, pushing relationships with franchisees to the breaking point. Cheryl came in, she committed to stay, and she determined to serve. And everything began to shift. Her and Popeyes went through rebranding. She, before that, was with the KFC. She, right now, is the lead director on the board of directors at Chick Fil A. And how does she do it? How does she? How how does she become the chicken queen? How by daring to serve? We're going to get into that much more. I'm going to get some personal leadership coaching actually from Cheryl today because I was reading some of her stuff and I saw a really fascinating article she wrote that was in the Harvard Business Review, I thought, hmm, there's a lot from the chicken world and franchisees that relates to my day job. So I'm looking forward to digging in with her. Welcome to the Aggressive Life, Cheryl. Great to be with you. Yeah, this is uh, this is really, really good. Did you always anticipate that you would be the chicken queen? <laughs> is that what else called you, the chicken queen? Because I just invented that and I kind of like how it sounds. Yeah, I hate to tell you, but you're not the first person to coin it. Um, and, uh, I never had a plan to work at every major chicken quick service restaurant in the United States, but it ended up being a wonderful outcome. And, uh, it allows me, you know, I can tell you or teach you anything you want to know about chicken. When, when did it dawn on you that, man, I'm, I'm on a chicken run here. And, and have you always liked chicken personally, or maybe you don't like chicken personally? I love chicken. And, um, you know, here's the thing. Um, America now eats, I believe, more chicken than beef. Um, really? Yes. Wow. Um, and the interesting thing is at home, it's hard to make chicken interesting. So what a restaurant does for you is they make it more interesting. And Popeye's marinates their chicken for 12 hours in wonderful Louisiana spices and then prepares it uh, and breads it for you in a way you really can't do at home. I mean, when's the last time you fried chicken in your home? Never. Um, and so when you want the really wow factor chicken, you go out for it. And that's what these companies provide. It, it is. That's a really good point that it's chicken stuff at home is oftentimes blob. My, my sister gave me an amazing, amazing recipe. Aunt Carrie's chicken is what we call it. Every time we do it, people love it. They're, we ought to get that recipe and put it out for people. People might, people there you might, go. yeah, people might dig that. But you know, Popeye's I heard. Uh, to me, just in terms of brand or reputation, Popeye's has always seemed to me to be an also ran behind Chick-fil-A and KFC until recently. Like I just heard uh, that that like Thanksgiving, you're crushing on Thanksgiving because people pre-order their turkey and you're, you do the best turkey in the world and you can't even get in line because they're all sold out. Is this true? What's going on with the turkey? Yes, there's something called a Cajun spiced turkey, Cajun turkeys. Uh, Popeye's is the only company that sells them. You have to call really early and get in line to get one, and they are fabulous. Uh, highly recommend that. We've done that almost every Thanksgiving dinner for the last 15 years. So when you buy your chickens, I'm, I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm just fascinating the chicken thing because I'm, I've become a hunter and I've become really into getting my own meat. You know, and and I've I've thought about man, maybe maybe get a chicken coop and get our own eggs and stuff like that. So I'm just kind of fascinated about the thing, how it all operates. In like in bourbon, in the world of bourbon, everyone's got their own kind of warehouses, and they have their own way to age their bourbon. And like I did the 
tour in Lynchburg of Jack Daniels is one of the best tours I've ever done. And I just learned a lot about the whole thing. Like seven years, all those casks are in there. And over seven years, the weather patterns that exactly averages everything out. And the, and the bourbon tastes the same as always, except for the stuff from the top shelf and the bottom shelf, which really just fascinating, fascinating. So everyone's got everything. With the chicken world, like, do you all have your own chicken coops and do the own your own basic things? Or is there some huge, massive chicken farms that you go, you all buy the same chickens from yes so chicken is locally sourced because it's fresh it takes about six weeks to grow a chicken for a a quick service restaurant and so they're grown all over the united states most of them east of the mississippi river there are very few chicken farms for some reason on the west coast that's one of the challenges in the business Uh, but it's local farmers that uh, both raise the eggs and the chickens uh, and provide the supply. And yes, the major chicken restaurants all buy from similar companies and they tend to be local and family owned. There are a few big ones, but there's a lot of small ones. Six weeks from birth to six weeks. They're alive for six weeks until they may be made a sandwich? Yes. Wow. Yes. And you know what? They are, it's really a beautiful process when you watch it's clean, it's serious farming, it's uh, safe. Um, you know, one of the things you can't do if you have a chicken coop in their back in your backyard is keep your chickens safe from disease and that kind of thing. So it is a really clean, well-run business. And I have a lot of respect for the farmers who run chicken farms. So you, you've been making your, your kind of name or making a name for yourself or actually helping people in a large, large way, not through understanding chicken. I'm just fascinated by that right now, but through service. You wrote a book called Dare to Serve, How to Drive Superior Results by Serving Others. I loved uh, in the Harvest Business Review article that I read, you recounted something and said something that I just thought was, well, I've never heard anybody talk this way. You said when you were KFC, you had, I think you said 14 14 months of growth or 14 quarters of growth and 16 quarters or 16 months where it didn't grow and you lost your job and you said, I learned that results matter. And I thought, I've never, I've never heard anybody actually say that. It's always like someone screwed me over or they didn't get the vision of what I was doing or they weren't listening to my ideas. Like you said that with, with no addendum, that was an incredibly aggressive and humble statement that I just found striking and incredibly challenging to myself. So it, it just goes with the principle that I hold dear, which is personal accountability. I mean, I, I did get fired. It was on the cover of the local business section. It was really humiliating. So yes, I experienced a lot of uh, tough times around that to my, a blow to my confidence for sure. But you have to take accountability. Um, and what I learned, the, the headline on the learning, I think, is the most important thing, which is I believe in uh, leadership is about serving others. And you cannot serve people well and not perform well. You just can't. If you've ever worked for a company that's in decline and laying people off, you know this. It's not good for the people to be working in a struggling place. And so as leaders, whether it's nonprofit or for profit or government or education, our job is to create places where people thrive and where the business performs. That's it. That's what leadership is. So it was then part of being a servant leader that enabled you to take responsibility? That right? Is that what you're saying on, on that count? Well, you should. Uh, yes. You know, you, uh, a leader who serves looks in the mirror every day and said, how did, how did I do? Uh, Robert Greenleaf was one of the thought leaders in servant leadership about 40 years ago. And he said the test of servant leadership, and this is my paraphrase, but he essentially says the test of a servant leader is are the people better off because of your leadership? They have to be better off to serve them well. So are you training them well? Are you developing their capability? And is the business performing so that uh, they thrive, they make bonus checks? You know, those are the things that matter in a thriving enterprise. Boy, that's a that's a good word. I've been just thinking recently and hearing other people talk about the dynamics of power and how just the way the world operates is those with power, the blessings flow up to us, not them. I say us. 
I've got, I'm at the top of, of an organization that, that I run and yeah, the, the blessings of power do run up naturally, you know, the highest salaries, sometimes the most job flexibility, <clears throat> sometimes the most, um, whatever it is maybe perks or maybe esteem issues flow up and, and I'm really challenged to say, how do I push those down, reverse that, reverse that and push those things down. And uh, I hadn't thought about that from the bucket of a servant leader that serves, I guess that serves really well to be in that bucket. So just talk more, give give us a sermon, talk to us about what it means to be a servant leader. And if it comes out of your book or not, just, just build into us, Cheryl. Well, I'll start with, I'll pivot on your point, which is our job as servant leaders is to make sure the blessings flow to everyone involved in the enterprise, uh, that the experience, the conditions of work, the opportunities are good for the people. So I say that Dare to Serve Leadership is characterized by this. It's characterized by a leader who has the courage to take the people to a daring destination. That's all about the plan, the bold goals. Take them somewhere that's going to matter. First thing. Second thing is serve them well on the journey. Um, Don't just say, hey, we're going to the mountaintop. Good luck. Okay. Our job as leaders is to bring people with us. Our job is to give followers the opportunity to experience success. And if we do that, if we are courageous and if we are humble to serve, we create the conditions where people perform their best work. That's the whole job of leadership, right? We create the environment the conditions where people perform. If we create safe, secure, healthy environments, they bring the best version of themselves and we get the benefits to the enterprise. If we create a condescending or harsh or negative environment, they don't bring the full thing, right? Because it's not safe to do so. They kind of hold back capability and effort and risk-taking because we have not provided for an environment where they can thrive. So, you know, I believe out of my faith, leadership creates conditions for human flourishing, human flourishing. Sometimes that's giving very tough feedback to a person that says for you to flourish here, you need to step up your game or learn these skills or grow in your character traits. But if I do that for you, I can pretty predictably say you will be more effective, you will prosper, you will flourish in your life, not financially, but in all aspects of life, right? And so human flourishing is the goal of leadership, and it's also the path towards high performance. It seems as I talk to leaders who lead organizations, one of the refrains or common themes I hear a lot is how the power dynamics actually have shifted. Uh, it's, it's, I'm not saying that the people at the top are getting less money than the people in the bottom, but leaders who used to just be able to make decisions and set a course, having a harder time doing that because of, well, either their employees are more boisterous than they used to be, or employees are more scarce to come by because people are leaving and there's a lack of good people to hire, or the dynamics have changed in culture in terms of what a, what a leader is supposed to talk about and say and what the business is supposed to be about. Do you see this as, well, first of all, would you agree with that? Are you seeing that across the board? And do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? So... Uh, Great leadership has always yielded better talent in a company. We're seeing kind of a stress point of it now because of um, unemployment is so low and it is very difficult to hire. And this new generation of leaders is uh, has very strong opinions about where they want to work and how they want to work and what they want their companies to represent that they work for. All those dynamics that you raised are true and are challenging to leaders. Um, But here's the thing. It's always been important and always been difficult to create a place where people thrive and perform their best and stay the longest, right? Retention of people is the number one indicator of whether they're engaged and flourishing and, and prospering themselves, right? They stay when places are exciting and Uh, good for their development. If the leaders are changing, we should be listening and we should be providing the conditions where they perform their best. Now, I will tell you, I'm a a bona fide baby boomer. That makes me not like, I fit in that category. So what do I have to do? 
I have to prove that I'm willing to lay down my assumptions uh, about what a good workplace looks like or whether you can work effectively remotely. Any, any bias I might have, I got to lay it down and listen, lay it down and listen, because there is no chance that I can make a place for you to prosper if I don't know you. I always say, I must know you to grow you. There's no chance I can lead effectively if I don't know you and create the conditions where you grow and flourish. And so uh, listening is the most underdeveloped skill in leadership. And there's actually two. The most underdeveloped skills in leadership are listening carefully, and they are also communicating effectively. You would understand this being uh, a leader in a church, right? You're trained up in effective uh, communication. CEOs are not. And so they have two real watch out places. One is, do they have the capacity to stop talking and listen? Very hard to do for leaders in the C-suite. And do they know how to articulate the direction and the conditions of the company in a way that everyone can understand and follow? Not very often. Yeah, the the problem I'm seeing, Cheryl, is I love that thing, a know you to grow you. That, that's a great line. I got to know you to grow you. Uh, I do believe that the generations have changed, but there's, from, from, my, from my leadership experience, there's a vast difference between Gen X and millennials. Vast, vast especially Gen X and, and, and Gen Y. So which, which do I serve? And what I mean by that, I'll give you an example. Gen X, because I'm a Gen Xer, I was actually right in the, right in the, the tip of Gen X and, and, and Boomer. Uh, Gen X, the way you value Gen X is just kind of brash honesty. Like if I, if I feel it, I just say it and you're honored by the fact that I'm not pulling any punches. That was part of why, you know, look at the comedians of decades ago, they were just really brash people because it was kind of in the thing, right? Right. Well, that's not the way you serve 20 somethings. The way you serve 20 somethings is you never say anything that isn't measured and doesn't have an edge to it. It kind of clashes like somebody's offended by something that a Gen Xer says, which is honoring in their culture. And a Gen Xer is offended that I can't now be myself. I just talked with staff member about this the other day. Like, I feel like the first time I can't, there's peace in myself. I can't bring to work. So who do, how do we solve that? Who do we serve? Which generation? Are you seeing this stuff, Cheryl? Well, this is another missing ingredient in each generation. I mean, the most effective way, the most effective way we work together across generations, again, is to know and understand one another. And every generation has its strengths and every generation has its weaknesses. Uh, boomers, we were workaholics. So yeah, we got a bunch of stuff done and we created a lot of wealth, but we, you know, we didn't run our lives very well as a whole. So pros and cons. So we got to know and understand the pros and cons of each generation. Um, the X or your generation, um, I love straight talk, uh, but frankly, that generation often is really negative and skeptical, and that annoys me. But I have to tolerate it because I value straight talk. Um, and millennials, incredibly upbeat, optimistic, want to change the world, but they don't know much about the world yet. So I have to love their optimism. They're upbeat. They want to go change the world. And I have to be patient with their lack of experience because it's just where they're at in life. They're going to be great as they gain experience. So uh, self-awareness is another most important trait. Yes. Leader, right. Is do yes. you know who you are and who you aren't? Do you know your differences, whether it be generational, whether it be ethnic differences, whether it be male, female? The more honest we are about these differences, the more ability we have to access them for good. I believe the best teams are very complicated people, right? Because human beings are complicated. So if you put 10 of them in a room, it's going to be complicated unless they're clones. So we don't want clones. We don't want to be all alike. It doesn't lead to great decision-making. It doesn't lead to great outcomes. But to be different, we have to know, understand, and we have to be a little patient with each other to get the best out of that complicated mix of humanness, right? Yeah, I don't think I don't think we want to know and understand people. I think that's an American trait anymore. We just don't want to know and understand people. We, we just want to be upset when you don't think the way I do. It just seems like... 
there's a lack of empathy because we have a lack of energy. We just don't have the energy to get to know anybody's story. Um, you well, see that? and I will, I will add to that, Brian. Uh, we are not investing time in building healthy relationships. I mean, the, the phone, the iPad haven't helped. Um, we're happy to make all our commentary without being face-to-face. And it's hurting our ability to understand and appreciate differences. It's not going to happen on a device. It's going to happen through conversation. You mentioned, as you were talking about your servant leadership, you said your, your exact quote was my faith. How, how do you mind telling me what your faith is and how does your faith inform your leadership? That's a kind of, a, that's kind of an aggressive question because it's called the aggressive life because that's kind of like, oh, let's not talk about that. I, I promise I'm not going to judge you whatever your faith is. I'm just curious what it is and how it informs your leadership. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, because I've studied. Oh gosh, you're one of those. Okay. Yes, I am. <laughs> and I'm happy to talk about it because I don't think anybody understands what that means. Yeah, please. It doesn't mean I'm judgy. It doesn't mean my political party. It doesn't mean any of that junk that gets thrown at people. It means I simply believe that I was created by God and I'm supposed to live my life in a servant leadership way that was demonstrated in real life by Jesus who I believe lived and died for me. So yeah, that's not popular. That's not popular, but I want to say this about our faith. I believe any human being who thinks there's something greater than themselves is a better leader. So we should not put down people who put lay themselves down for the benefit of others. I mean, I know fabulous Muslim leaders, Hindu leaders. Um, but the, the reason we have in common, the thing we have in common is we are not the center of the universe. We have laid down our life and our will because we believe in this higher power. And so I, I, for me, that's, that's Jesus. And I'm really convicted about that. But I hope and pray that we can stay in conversation about the positive value of people who have a faith in something other than themselves, or we're going to lose out to a bunch of egomaniacs who don't care about anybody. Boy, you, you bring up a really interesting point. I like reading biographies and autobiographies. Generally, it's going to be about somebody who's successful, right? Because that's, that's the compelling stuff. And when I think about the... Uh, people who are very, very successful in tech. I don't want to go start naming names, but in, in tech, it tends to be a much more humanitarian, godless kind of worldview uh, by those folks. And when I, when I read those books by those folks, I, I kind of like to work with them because everyone likes to work with the winner. So those things are all going up and to the right. But at the same time, I go, man, that that person would just be really, really hard to work with. And I'll just give you one. You know, Steve Jobs, if you've read his biography, that he actually knighted the person to do it, Walter Isaacson, who did all of, he gave him access to everything. It was hard to find a single positive thing about Steve Jobs personally by everyone who worked with him. The whole book, it was, it was actually stunning to me. I hadn't thought before the vernacular you just used that, maybe believing in something higher, whether it is Jesus Christ or whether it is Muhammad or whatever it is, just that act alone makes us think differently about people who are quote unquote below us. Is that what you're saying? Well, um, my favorite line in life is it's not about you. And in culture, it's all about you. So what we need to understand is where we live today the neighborhoods and towns and cities where we live, most of the people are working on their life plan and probably at your expense in some fashion, right? We are a me, 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 me culture. And so anyone who stands apart from that and says, this is not about me, we could have some really interesting conversations. And I have come to conclude that people of faith, I just sat on a panel at Harvard um, Divinity School, sorry, I couldn't say it. Um, And we had a really lively conversation about the importance of talking about faith-based leadership in overcoming this me, me, me culture that we live in today. It could really, if you want to change the world, we need to have some respect 
for faith-based leaders who are not pursuing a self-interested path. What was the lively discussion? Was someone disagreeing with you or was there um, just different ideas of whether or not that's true or not? What was exciting is the students created this event, so they wanted to talk about it. And they wanted to meet some people who claimed to be leaders of faith. And they wanted to meet people of different faith. I just showed up and did my part. You know, I was the, the female and the Jesus follower, you know, and they could ask any <laughs> questions they wanted of us. And they did. Like they asked questions of when you, um, when you get an ambitious job offer that is potentially not good for your family, what do you do? Well, for me, I take my family into account. Those are hard times and discussions. We have to take everybody's time into it, you know, find out where everybody is in the family and whether this is potentially a good or a difficult time for that move to occur, right? Um, but if we care about flourishing at home, which we do, we have to talk about those things. In the workplace today, they don't ever ask you about how this move's going to affect your family. In fact, they really don't want to know about that. So, I just really think it's, uh, I was just really encouraged that young leaders in the business school, the government school, and the divinity school wanted to talk about this topic. And I think it's a great discussion about how faith-based leaders could contribute to more thriving workplaces. And did you find that when you said something in that environment, which actually could be very hostile to, to believers, even at a divinity school at Harvard, did you find that as you were talking about any of the concepts there was pushback so remarkably little pushback and very few aggressive comments made but here's if we're completely honest today in culture um the faith that is despised is christianity we actually are drawn towards people of other faiths because we they're interesting we don't know them we didn't grow up with them you know so that's all it's all good unless you're a Christian. So what I was pleased about is that Christians and people of other faiths were all allowed to give a point of view and ex an expression of what they believe without attack. And boy, what a difference. What a difference in the conversation. If we could just say, what's good about your faith? What, how, do, how do you bring it to work? What are the positives about it that we could all feel good about, even if we don't share the belief? I think those could be healthy conversations. We've brought a lot of shame on ourselves as believers. We've had more than our share of headlines that would warrant somebody thinking less of us. And, and yet you're finding success leading in corporate America as, as a person who has faith in Jesus. Cheryl, that's amazingly aggressive. Like, give some help to those of us who are in those environments. What should we be doing or not doing to help people around us see us for who we are? So one way is to help people discover their purpose and principles. At Popeyes, we called this leading from the heart, and we ran a two-day class. It was not faith-based. It was purely helping lead people through a process to discover what their strengths were, how their life experiences had prepared their, them to contribute, and how their beliefs have prepared them to contribute. And then we help them articulate a statement of how they wanted to come to work and the values they wanted to be known for so that they could share that with others and help others understand how they create value and contribute. This is a powerful idea. Yes, it takes time. Yes, it's an investment. But when you help a human being unlock the reason they're here and the core beliefs that they want to be lived out in their daily life, you have unlocked incredible human potential and human flourishing. And you have helped protect them from these downside risks of uh, feeling lack of value or feeling isolated or feeling like they don't matter. Yeah, that's, that's good stuff. All right, Cheryl, are you ready to give me some personal leadership coaching? Are you ready for it? Because I've, I've, got, I've got a conundrum for you that uh, as I've been reading some of your stuff, I thought, boy, you could have some fresh stuff. Are, are you ready, Cheryl, to change my life in the face of American Christianity? I would love to help. All right, here we go. You, uh, you, you said that one of the things you have to do in business is serve the franchisees. Why are you serving the franchisees? What's that thinking behind that? 
So um, I think all businesses are in service to groups of people and usually multiple groups, right? In a public company, you serve shareholders, uh, you serve employees. In my case, it was franchising, so we served franchise owners. What we actually did is we went in a room and wrote down all the people that were counting on us for something on a chart. And then we talked about who were the most important people on the list. And what we landed on in the franchising business model, the person who owns the restaurant, they uh, rented the property, built the building, hired the people, take care of the customer. That's the franchisee. They have the most invested of any other party. And they had far more invested than the executives in Atlanta, Georgia, which we quickly concluded we didn't have nearly as much at stake as they had at stake. So we decided that our decisions from that day forward would always be made through a lens of how they impacted those franchise owners. And we would listen carefully to those people and their passions and their experiences to make our decisions in a unified and aligned fashion. And that would unlock great opportunities for performance because we would work as one instead of at odds. So that's the nature of it. But you're right. Every nonprofit has a group of people that they serve and whose value they're looking to unlock. You know, if you run multi-campus church, you've got leaders on all those campuses that you're trying to unlock the best in them and the best uh, capability to serve their communities. You're trying to serve your volunteers. You're trying to serve your congregations, as we call them in church. Um, So same conversation. And in fact, just to give you some coaching, um, a great church leader in Detroit named Chris Brooks, when he took over Woodside Bible, we did the 40 questions in my Dare to Serve book as the way he decided how to serve his campus pastors. And we had fabulous discussions about how to do that effectively and not put the focus on the center, the church, you know, home office, so to speak, but to really put the emphasis on setting those uh, campus pastors up for success. And he's used that thinking very effectively uh, to continue to build his ministry. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I'm making an aggressive move right now because I'm going to process with you things that people who are internal in my organization could use against me. Because if if you if you coach me on one thing and I decide to go a different way, then uh, whatever I'm gonna I'm gonna live with that. I'm gonna live with that. So here, here's you're the, gonna hear about it. Yeah, probably, but that's okay. That's quite fine. I want I want to serve them and um, them being normal staff members, people who are insights, people who are community pastors, people who are online stuff, all that stuff. So if, if you're if you're uh, not in the sort of mega church evangelical world, let me just recap or not or, or explain for those of us who are not, so you get where I'm going to go with with Cheryl, where I want your help. So the evangelical Christian church, and if you asked me if I was an evangelical, I would have to say, well, tell me what an evangelical is first, because based on how you define it, I might or might not be. But if we take a look at where the church has grown in America, where numbers are increasing, it's always and only within quote-unquote evangelical churches, the progressive denominations who are redefining a whole bunch of things that Christians have agreed on for millennia, they're, they're all in decline. They're all going away. They're all, it, all of them. The only place where you're really seeing in Christendom growing attendance is in uh, churches where they have a relatively conservative understanding of the Bible and preach that. In that context, people have been saying, well, you know, mega church is going to die. It's going to go away. It's going to go away. And yet, Every year, there's just there's more of them, and the ones that are there are larger and larger every year, except maybe the last couple of years of COVID, which is changing changing everything. One of the ways this is uh, this this has happened, this growth, which may be good, maybe bad. It's just what's happens happening sociologically in Christian America is many places that have really strong ministries, great communicators, great leadership cultures are not limiting their growth to the size of the building that they can build. They're saying, well, let's have multiple buildings in multiple places, not just church plant and just spin off money and people to go do your own individual isolated church, but let's have a bunch of different churches, buildings inside of our governance structure and have them be around. And there's churches that have just taken off like that. Um, Crossroads has 10 of those sites 
the one I work with. And attention that we have is this, how do we serve the local sites and the local community pastors while still having a menu or a brand, if you will, that's understandable and is acceptable because that is crossroads. And on top of that, when push comes to shove, where do we allow customization inside of the sites and where do we not allow customization? So if you were, let's say you were, um, well, we know who you are now. You're an amazingly effective CEO and leader and you're a believer. Let's say that I decided to retire and hand the baton over to you and you are now the new senior pastor at Crossroads and all of these sites. How would your franchise convictions influence the kind of decisions that you would make inside of a context like us? And I know, by the way, I'm not just speaking for myself. I'm speaking for a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of pastors who have the multi-site thing going. People have toyed around in churches with franchising. Do we franchise our thing? No one's actually ever been able to do it. There's a bunch that have tried, but I don't know, enough babbling for me. Coach me, oh, wise Yoda. Yeah. So uh, the reason uh, it's not often successful is it's harder. It's harder. A controlled model, right, is always going to be easier to control. And this franchise model where you kind of let people do some of it on their own, uh, there's dangers in that, right? They might do something different. They might compete with your brand in some fashion or, or just go their own way. So you've chosen a harder path, but here's the what you have to do. And I actually have gotten paid large sums of money to do this for franchise companies because here's what they don't do. They don't negotiate a pact between the franchisor, the home office, and the franchisees and agree on what has to be the same and what can be different. There's no shortcut to this. You can't uh, just let this evolve. You can't just let everybody come up to their own conclusions for this to work. No, it has to be defined. And it has to be defined in a way that we agree. So here's a couple of examples. The people who are doing those 10 campuses for Crossroads there was something about Crossroads that they liked and wanted to be a part of, or they would have done their own church. So what are the sacred elements, if you'll let me use that word loosely, right? What's sacred? What's a value in that Crossroads brand that we want to be the same on all properties at all locations? Because it's part of the, you know, part of the way it works best, right? It's the secret sauce. It's the secret sauce. And then we also have to negotiate in this pack what the branch campus is responsible for doing and doing well. Because let's say they use the Crossroad name and they do something wrong for Crossroads brand, right? And you have to stop that. It's unhealthy or it's not good for the, the, the name or the congregation. You have to have some criteria for that. Same in franchising. We have food safety standards in a restaurant. You can't serve unsafe food. Same thing. You have to have some governance around what the campus pastor does and doesn't do for this to work. And you write those things down. I call them PACs, not contracts, because, you know, when you need a legal contract, you're in bigger problems, right? Because that means there's no trust between you and there's no relationship. But if you operate out of high relationship and work hard at getting reliant on the pack, then you can have these conversations. Hey, I said the Crossroad brands was going to mean this, so we got to live with that. And you said that you were going to do this on your campus uh, to create you know, safety and thriving conditions. You've got to do your part because we agreed that both of our parts are essential to this working best. But that's a lot of hard work. It would be easier to send a memo or mail the contract than to work that out with real human beings and constantly remind one another of what that pact is to each other. Uh, But that's the work of life and that's the work of great organizations. Here's another thing people don't understand about people. People need boundaries to be effective. I call it, you define the smallest box you can define that means Crossroad Church, 
the more likely the people will consistently execute that idea because it's tidy and tight and clear. There's boundaries. If you give them this much room, you're going to have lots of chaos, right? Because nobody knows what you mean by this much room. It just is, I can do whatever I want. So the tighter you work on those boundaries and the more buy-in you get, you're going to have a powerful, and I call it differentiated, church, right? Unique, better than the next church because you work so hard to execute the idea well. And that's the whole point, right? You only expand things that are working well. Crossroads was working well, therefore there's 10 more. Yeah, in some ways the the illustration with franchises does break down because this isn't, you know, the average church that starts sites. It's not some person from the outside who has a following uh, comes in and says, hey, we want to be crossroads right now. It's it's company-generated stuff. I mean, it's us finding the leader. It's us finding the property. It's us, you know, it's all that It's all that stuff. So it's not like somebody within a franchise world has a second mortgage on their home that's funding you know, the operations or, or is going to have to be taken away if the operations don't go. It's not, it's not that dynamic, but it is a dynamic of when do you listen to somebody who's a leader in a local church who feels like, man, this is something our local community has to do. And it may not, it may be on brand, but is it energy that you are taking that it's going to take you away from having a win in what really matters? Like the one church that's for sure best in class, very, very well known, Life Church, originally started in Oklahoma City and they're branching out all over the place. And they, I mean, they're, you know, if you take a look at their their vital statistics, every category, they're just killing it. They're great. They're going, 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 going. Uh, but they're, it, it's, it's, they have a play and you run the play and that's just the way it is. They're not giving innovation and uh, just a lot of modification on sites for, for some things. And for a lot of pastors, that's working really, really great for them. That's why they're in that system and God's using that amazingly. And then there's ones like me where I'm like, man, I don't, I, I don't exist very well within that type of strict corporate control. And I don't mean that negatively corporate control. I'm not, I don't mean there's no loaded phrase, just like I'm more of a, Oh, let's try some things. But yet I also see how some ways we might be not focusing our energy, right? I don't know. I'm on, I'm on the leadership psychology couch right now, Cheryl. I'm just like processing, pick things up that you can and just, just coach me. Well, there are two different kinds of people. Uh, franchisees in my business model are actually not true entrepreneurs, right? They don't start from scratch and make something out of nothing. That would be Bob's chicken, not Popeye's, right? They signed up for great, the great food and business model of Popeye's. Same at Chick-fil-A. When you join Chick-fil-A's franchising organization, you sign up to do it their way. A true entrepreneur, like you're, you're ready to start Bob's church, you're going to feel constrained if you sign on to somebody else's definition of church, right? You're going to feel too constrained. So there are people, I believe, that are designed to start Bob's church. And then there are people that say, I really want to sign up with a, hyper, a, a model that's already been largely proven that I can take and run with you know, great leadership, that's called Crossroads. And that makes me a bit of a follower instead of a leader and innovator. But I'm willing to make that trade because it takes risks away. I know this model works. I've seen it in action. As a servant leader, how do I make these decisions with a servant mindset? Because the way most of us make these decisions is what works for me. Like I'm not yeah. a, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a corporate assembly line person. And so I've got a structure that I'm encouraging that works for me personally. I think all of us in our leadership, what's being, what's informing some more decisions is simply what works for us. Is that okay? Is that not okay? Yeah. So another way to say that it's not just what he likes or what you like, it's how we're wired. I am wired to be a large, complex organization leader. I am not wired to be a startup entrepreneur. I get calls all the time to mentor startup entrepreneurs, and I look at them and I say, I have no idea what you should do. None. 
But if you give me General Motors, I know something about large, complex organizations. I can help. So know yourself. And if you're well-suited to the opportunity, then serve there. But if you're not well-suited, well-designed for that, then that's a, that's a watch-out note, right? That's a reason to say, I better make sure I'm synced up with the opportunity. From a faith standpoint, I think the question is, look to see where God's at work and join him there, right? So my job isn't to, you know, get up every day and decide where Cheryl wants to work. My job is to wake up every day and say, what is God up to where he needs my capability and I can jump up and help? Like this weekend, I taught um, over the weekend at a C-suite for Christian women leaders. Now, that is, we call ourselves unicorns because there aren't very many of us, <laughs> right, that are Christian right. moms and C-suite leaders, right? That's yeah, so you had a one-on-one -on -one coffee. That, how'd that go? We had a small group, but it was a precious opportunity for me to pour into a group of women. There were about 50 of us. They're super capable. If I told you where they work, you'd be so impressed. And that's a place where I can easily say, yeah, God's at work there and I can help, right? So listening uh, in the faith, in faith language, listening for what I believe God's restoring all things to the way he intended them to be. And I want to help. Um, that's our job. That's what keeps us from saying, well, for Cheryl's resume, I should take this job, right? That's self-absorbed. But if God's up to something, he points it out to me and he says, hey, your skills are needed over here. I'm, I'm ready. Let's go. If, if, if I like it, it, it's in line with the decisions I like, and I see that God's doing something in that model, if those two things line up, then I'm probably pretty confident I'm operating as a servant leader. Yeah, God, draw, God calls our talents to the opportunities, right? And he gave us the talents. So the fact that you feel comfortable or that you're good at it, that's all fine. It's just about, okay, great. I can see the match, God. You made, match made in heaven, right? I see that you designed me for such a moment as this, and I'm game. I want to go. I want to help. Um, what most people do is they don't spend any time with God to hear what he's got going on. That's the flaw in all of us is not taking enough quiet still time. You know, Elijah was laying on the ground, nearly passed out when he finally heard God he was working too hard and too exhausted to actually hear what God is up to and how to join. That's true of all of us. Cheryl, are you ready for the lightning round? The lightning round is when I give you a topic and you have to give me a one or two sentence answer. Like, bam, bam, like lightning. Okay, yeah, let's do the bam, bam thing. All right, here we go. Here we go. The bam, bam thing. Bam, bam. We could call it the bam, bam thing. That'd be better. Yeah, I like that. That's good. All right. Favorite Popeye's menu item. Spicy tenders. Most aggressive move you're making right now? Spending more time building relationships. Best piece of advice you've ever gotten? First paragraph of Purpose Driven Life. It starts with, it's not about you. Lowest hanging fruit for someone who wants to be a better leader? Learn how to listen more and talk less. Woman, how are you getting these so quickly? Like, you're, you're dropping... You know, you're dropping gold nuggets and like, bam, bam. And you, wow. Although I did, I guess I did share the notes. Did you see these coming and you prepared it or are you just this good? I saw the notes, but I have some convictions about these things. I want to encourage leaders, have, know, your, what, know what you have convictions about. And then these questions get a whole lot easier. All right, good. What sets Popeye's apart from the field? The food by far. It's amazing food. All right. Let's just stop right there. I got, I got one or two more lightning rounds, but just, just that's it. Um, the chickens all come from the same place, but Chick-fil-A has got to have the freshest ingredients. That's their secret, right? Or not? Or is their secret simply they work six days and they actually name the name of Jesus Christ? What is it? They are fabulous at many things. They use fresh chicken. Yes. Uh, they have great people that are well-trained and they um, operate well, which a lot of leaders forget this part. They set their teams up for success. They make sure that it's easy to work there. And fast food is not easy, right? That whole drive-through window thing, hard. 
Uh, so um, I think we can all learn from that. Set your people up for success. But you believe you put a Popeye's piece of chicken right beside a Chick-fil-A piece of chicken. You're saying blind taste test. People are going to go Popeye's. I would say some people would love Popeye's and some would love Chick-fil-A. They're both very good. They're just different. All right. Last question. Thing you're most proud of? I am most proud of the leaders at Popeye's over 10 years and the things that they are pouring into today. Just one example about three, four of the Popeye's leadership team went to another restaurant called Tropical Smoothie, and they're knocking it out of the park using all the servant leadership principles that they learned there. And I would tell you leaders are made by other leaders and they go on to make more leaders. That's what Albert Moeller said in his book, The Convictions of Leadership. And I think that's what we're supposed to be doing, make more leaders. Cheryl, is there anything you want to talk about that I haven't brought up yet? We covered a lot of ground, way more than I prepared for. So good job. That was fun. That's because you were so good. I'm serious, man. You're... You are a CEO actually can communicate. It is crazy how many CEOs can't communicate and how they, they hire people to give their talking points and write speeches for them. You're obviously a communicator. So, wow, the, the hour went really, really fast. The book is called Dare to Serve, How to Survive, How to Drive Superior Results by Serving Others. If someone wants to follow up with you or find more of your stuff, go ahead and uh, promote yourself. Well, I love to hear from you. My website's called Serving Performs. Just Google it. Uh, I also love LinkedIn. um, And I also love faith at work as a movement. So I love Work Matters in particular. If you're looking for more support and taking your faith to work, those are some of the things I encourage you to do. I'm very involved on all those fronts. Folks, you just got a lot of truth dropped in your mind, dropped in your lap. I encourage you to take something and do something with it. I know for me, one of the things that Cheryl said was, got to know you to grow you. I'm challenged to go, hmm, am I asking as many personal questions of people I serve with as I should? Take something and do something. That's why it's called the aggressive life, not the interesting thoughts life. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.